thanks to our sponsor, Orchestry. Don't be fooled. Microsoft Teams and SharePoint are difficult. Microsoft Teams, when simply turned on, can be unruly and yield endless sprawl. SharePoint causes constant frustration with user interface and permissioning challenges. End the chaos and harness the full power of Microsoft Teams, SharePoint Online, and Microsoft 365 with Orchestry. Orchestry is the work-made simple platform that empowers end users through controlled self-service provisioning while delivering the actionable insights and lifecycle management your IT administrators need to enable remote and hybrid work productivity without locking down the powerful capabilities of Microsoft Teams and SharePoint Online. See why so many are claiming Orchestry to be the must-have Microsoft Teams management tool of 2021. Get your free access to Orchestry with full featured trial at orchestry.com and tell them the Microsoft Cloud Show sent you to get the all the friends of the show perks. This is the Microsoft Cloud Show, episode 430, where today AC and I are going to talk about Facebook's bad days, what's new in Microsoft 365, and we're going to cover some news. Recorded live. 7th of October, 2021. This episode is brought to you by ShareGate. Microsoft Teams can be a great tool for your organization. That is, before your users make your environment messier than eating a hard shell taco. And that's where ShareGate comes in. Their user-friendly tools automate the tedious daily tasks involved in migrating, managing, and securing Microsoft Teams so that you can maintain a safe and productive environment without locking it down. Head over to ShareGate.com for your free 30-day trial and transform the way that you manage your Microsoft Teams. And now, back to the show. AC, good morning. How's it going, buddy? <laughs> Better than Facebook. <laughs> it's so funny, right? I saw something on Tuesday. So, I, I, granted, it's been a few days, and by the time everybody hears this, it'll be even more few days. But I saw something at the end of the day on Tuesday, and it's like, Let's get this straight. Facebook has a whistleblower basically completely throw them under the bus on Sunday night on 60 Minutes. On Monday, they have a six-hour epic outage that also blocked their own employees from getting into buildings, including the rest of the world. Facebook literally just disappeared from the internet for about six hours. And then the stock tanked and Zuckerberg lost $7 billion in personal wealth. And then on Tuesday, they got skewered for about three and a half hours in congressional ter- testimony by the whistleblower. And someone's like, you think you're having a bad week? Look at Zuckerberg. And it's only freaking Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say uh, last week was probably not pleasant for Facebook in a lot of ways. Rough. You know, it was interesting. You and I both watched the congressional testimony. We watched it live as it was going down. I've actually rewatched it. I rewatched it over the last two nights. I was, I mean, you talk about like, you know, geeking out or recognizing that you're no longer in your 20s and you're watching like C SPAN and watching congressional testimony with, yeah, at night instead of watching <laughs> something on Netflix. But I'll tell you, so you know, I, true. I've been, I still am a Facebook fan. I like Facebook on the personal side. I love it on the business side. I love their ad platform for business. You know, admittedly, I had seen a lot of the FUD. I thought it was all FUD from the last, I don't know, for the, for recent times where people are saying like, Facebook's bad for you, Facebook's bad for you, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of it, I just thought it was, you know, I just dismissed it as a lot of people saying, look, you know, you don't have any proof of this stuff. It's all anecdotal. It, these are people that I'm kind of in my mind are like, you don't like Facebook. And so you're coming up with just BS stuff and you're latching on to what all these other people say is like, is stuff and you don't really have any evidence. But I tell you what, man, that whistleblower, when 
the 60 Minutes interview, I thought was, first of all, all the stuff that's come out in the Wall Street Journal from the stuff that, the, that she had uh, copied in a chair with the Wall Street Journal, those articles were all very interesting. Her interview on 60 Minutes and then watching the dialogue with her and the senators at the and the congressional testimony, what struck me about this this time around was number one, just how much of an authority she is on the topic because she's done she's worked in this space at multiple mm. social media companies from Pinterest, Yelp. She was on the Google Plus side as well. I uh, forget what the other one was, but she had like three or four different social networks, including Facebook. Not only her background and her author- her authority to speak on these things, but then how versed she was on what was going on inside Facebook and in the documents that she had taken out and how much of this was her really just repeating what Facebook had already deduced from their own internal reporting and their own research. Mm. I found it so freaking fascinating and just fascinating and scary about everything. I mean, if I was, my daughter is 12. She is on Instagram or she was on Instagram a couple of weeks ago, we noticed she just sit there and mindlessly scroll through it. I can't say that yeah. she was going, you know, down the down the the dark into a dark place, like where like what was alluded to in a lot of the testimony. But I mean, it was definitely not a a positive thing yeah. or a yeah. good thing for her. And we know we decided to take it away when we just looked at the people that she was following, just a bunch of influencers stuff like that. And it's like you don't really need this. You talk to your friends on text. You don't need Facebook right now. We took it away. Man, had I not, had I not done that prior to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to seeing this testimony, I probably would have done it by Tuesday night or Wednesday of this week. I was really surprised at some of the stats and stuff that were out there from this. And I'm really curious to see where this goes in the future. It was damning. It was very interesting. It was very damning. And it just sort of reinforced my belief that if something's free, you are the product. And how far or the lengths that which Facebook will go to to ensure that you're the product that you know they're willing to sell to advertisers for money. And it shouldn't be any surprise, right? But it just really was quite reinforcing of that. And just like, man, you know, I love Facebook. It's how I connect with friends all over the world. Mm. But there's also that rough, dark, horrible side of it that I know that people are being taken advantage of. And uh, I feel more in control over that than I think I think a lot of like teens and others are. But I know that a lot of people aren't, right? They're not in control of what they get advertised at and get sucked into. You know, I make mistakes as well, but and get sucked into conversations and topics like we were talking about before the show. But I feel like it's a useful tool for me and I, I really like it. But yeah, but I, I guess I recognize that there's that, that side of it, that it is, a, it is being used for all sorts of less than positive things for society. I, so, you know, we watched it and then I remember I came away from watching it and I looked at my wife and I was like, you know what? I think that this is like mandatory watching. I think that as somebody who's on Facebook, as somebody who's on Instagram and having kids, I think it's something that you definitely should see. She gave me the the big eye roll, but she did watch some of it that night. The first night we sat down, it was done. We watched about 45 minutes of it. And last night I was like, do you want to watch any more of that? Because I'm happy to go to watch the show that I was watching on Netflix. Or if you want to you know, watch your thing or we want to watch something together or you know, whatever. And she's like, no, I actually want to see the rest of it. I think my big, t- I would recommend anybody that anybody who's not really aware of what's kind of going on with it, I'd recommend you go look at it. I'm not saying, I'm not advocating anybody go get off of Facebook, go get off of Instagram. You just should be aware of yeah. their own research. And yeah. I think there's a few things that stood out to me 
that were eye opening to me about the whole thing. They're like they have evidence, and where they've even asked like young kids, where they sit there and they're like going through and they're scrolling through like Instagram, and it's making them feel worse and worse and worse. Yeah, yeah. About like body image, but then they also feel like they can't be off of Instagram because they feel like they're going to be ostracized from their friends mm-hmm. and their society because so many of them are there. So it's like they go there to try and get out of, to be able to get away from, to be able to try and feel better about themselves. They feel worse, but then they can't stop doing it because they feel like they're going to feel worse if they get off of it. That was one thing that was kind of scary to me. The other one that I thought that was really big, and I, I could, we could talk about, I could talk about this for an hour, but we're not going to. The other thing though that I would say, why I would tell people to go look at it is this is the other, the other thing that I really, I got from this that, that I took away from the testimony that was kind of one of those like, here's how things are different was that a lot of this testimony, I think there's, we're going to see more about this, more from all the disclosure of all the stuff that she, the reports that she pulled out of Facebook before she left, specifically around like cyber espionage or espionage, counter espionage, around politics, around misinformation, and all that. She focused, she was very smart to focus this first kind of hearing that she was on about kids because it's yeah. kind of a hard, it's the first, you and I both picked up on the same thing. It's the first time I ever, I can remember watching something political and you could have dropped the R or the D from the senator's names. Everybody was Wouldn't on the same page. Yeah, that was actually, you don't see that very often. And that was quite refreshing. Yeah, unless it's like a national emergency, I don't, you don't see that. Yeah. The thing that I got out of this that I thought was really eye-opening to me was that it was kind of twofold. It was one, when you and I were growing up, you know, when we were in, high school 20 years ago, Back 30 then? years ago. <laughs> if you had issues at school, when you went home from school, you kind of had that break of yeah. 16 hours. You could hours get away from it. Mm-hmm. You could get away from it until you went back to school the next day and it was something else. But today they can't. And my answer that she did a very good job of rebuffing this. My answer has always been in my head was your parents need to do a better job of parenting your kids with this and just take, take it away from them. And it shows that that's not the, that parents aren't, didn't grow up in this world, in this world that these kids are growing up in today. And as somebody who's got a teenager and high school, a preteen girl, it is a, you think that you've got a good perspective on it, but this is like the second or third like example, not just Facebook, but there's a couple of things have gone on in, in our life that in our household that I kind of, I've started to have this appreciation in the last couple of months of, I didn't go through this yeah. when I was yeah. their age. And I don't think I have the perspective that they have on this. And so I need to take a step back and say, I need to recognize this as one of those, okay, now I know what I don't know. And at least yeah. and I yeah. can't say I haven't, I don't have an answer for it, but I, before it was, I didn't know that I didn't know this. And now hearing the way that she explained it, I do have that kind of perspective on it. Yeah. And so kids feel like they go to their parents, they go home and like, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to fix it. And the parents are like, just don't use it. Stop well, that's really it. Yeah. easy for people like you and me yeah. to do that as a 40, <laughs> mid 40 year olds, mid, you know, not 30 year olds or 20 year olds, but yeah. as somebody who's 13 years old, 14 years old. Yeah. They don't have that maturity no. yet. I, so, I think the other thing that I really took away from it that just blew my mind it shouldn't all be shouldn't be that all that surprising because it's fairly obvious when you think about it. But is the negative impact on like body image and eating disorders that young women and girls suffer from? Yeah, getting caught up in the negative side of all of this really damning evidence around that stuff. What they said, she said six, and this is only the people who admitted it, but <clears> but six six percent 
of the suicides in the United States and 13% in the United Kingdom can be attributed to a negative influence of Instagram. And that's the direct huh. correlation that they can make. That was Facebook's own research. Wow. Terrific. Yeah. So anyway, I'd recommend it. But yeah. we, I saw it on C-SPAN. I guess we could grab a link and just put it in the show notes. I'm not sure if people will be interested in that, but I watched it on C-SPAN. It's, the recording of the whole thing is three hours and 28 minutes. Uh, if you want the cliff notes of it, you can, I would say, skip the first 33 minutes of it until you get to the to the witness's opening testimony. And in the middle of it, there's about a hour-ish or 45-minute, 30-minute break where they start replaying stuff. And you can kind of see where it's like picture in picture. When the picture in picture goes away, that's when they're on break and they were showing the old stuff. You can skip all that and jump straight in. The part, I thought that the first like 20 minutes after the break, when they talk to the Arkansas Senator and um, even Ted Cruz. Um, I thought they, they both had some really good questions and a really good discussion. Even Ted Cruz. There you go. I know Wolverine, uh, the Texas Wolverine even did a great job. So Is there... oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Texas Wolverine. Wolverine. Yeah. So I shouldn't have said I shouldn't go there. Anyway. Could have been worse. Could have been oh no, I'm not gonna go there. Anyway. All right. Moving right along. Oh, well, some new stuff that's in 365. On that cheery note, let's roll. This episode is sponsored by Raygun. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that not only does it tell you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every single day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit raygun.com to resolve issues faster and to deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 a month. And we're back. Was that for an abrupt transition? All right, so here we go. <laughs> Let me kind of throw out a few things that are what's new with Microsoft 365. I'm going to run through these. Quickish, I would recommend uh, if you are interested in, in learning more about this stuff. I'm just going to read out the titles because we have a bunch of new stuff that we want to run through as well today. But if you want the titles and you want, or you want the, the message center IDs where you can go learn more about this, I'd recommend go to our show notes because they will be listed in the show notes. So I've got five of them, it looks like. So the first one is there's been an update to Microsoft 365 and Outlook for Windows connectivity. There's a Microsoft 365 records management, information governance, and e-discovery. They now have an optimized behavior of file versions preserved in SharePoint Online and OneDrive for Business. Previously, it was they saved separate copies of the file for each version. Now, all the ver- they just save the one that's got all the versions inside of it instead of like gotcha. multiple copies, just a more efficiency thing. For Microsoft Teams, there's a new search results page coming. They're also making changes to the LinkedIn integration with the Microsoft 365 People Card. And then finally, they're going to, in Excel, they're going to have um, Excel macros are going to be disabled by default. You're going to have to enable them. So they're going to change that to be disabled by default as a default setting. So... That's five different things. There's nothing really too epic here to really cover, but I thought we definitely were going to go ahead and 
mention those before we dive into the news. Yeah, some nice, uh, nice little updates there. All right, let us take a quick break and we'll be right back for the news. This podcast is brought to you by Geomond. Have you thought about adding contact center capabilities into your existing Microsoft Teams user base? If so, take advantage of our promo to add BuzzEasy Contact Center for Teams from Geomond and get your first month subscription for free. It's a complete omni-channel experience that works seamlessly with Teams Voice. BuzzEasy was developed with best practices in Azure and offers a rich, easy-to-use experience. Geomont is a Microsoft Gold Partner, part of the Technology Adoption Program, and their BuzzEasy chatbot solution for Teams has been chosen as a preferred solution on the Microsoft App Store. See the show notes for details around a special offer. Back to the show. All right, AC. We might as well get it out of the way. We've been bagging on Facebook a bunch in the in the preamble for the show. But of course, they had more of a shocker the day right before actually the testimony began, if I remember correctly, where they disappeared off the internet for five hours or so. Like really disappeared. <laughs> yeah, I believe it's probably the first time and maybe the only time that non-technical people around the world will... <laughs> Hear the term BGP mm-hmm. <laughs> and how it kind of helps make the internet work. Well, yeah. I guess makes the internet work, right? It's one of the very critical pieces of, uh, of how the internet is strung together. If you don't know what BGP is, there's lots of articles this week about it. <laughs> you can, I, I am no expert on BGP by any stretch. I just know the basics of what piece of the puzzle it it helps you helps uh, hang the internet together with. But uh, if you want to learn more about it, there's lots of great articles. But the one I will point to is from the Facebook engineering blog, which is more details about the October 4th outage. It's just very, it's very strangely casual. It's like, now that our platforms are up and running as usual after yesterday's outage, I thought it'd be worth sharing a little more detail on what happened and why. Gee, you think? Maybe. Or as Obi-Wan said, I felt a great disturbance in the force as if millions of pointless bickering voices on Facebook suddenly cried out and were suddenly silenced. It was quite eerie, actually. It was quite eerie. Anyway, it goes through the timeline of, you know, essentially what happened. My summary is that somebody did done goof. That goof resulted in the goof not being caught by the anti-goofinator algorithm and it ended up turning off some settings by accident, right? Because the anti-goofinator didn't pick up the goof, which inadvertently nuked some settings, which meant that their DNS servers thought that that data center or what have you was offline, which then resulted in it stopping broadcasting BGP tables for that part of their network, which essentially took down every Facebook service known to mankind like Facebook itself, Instagram, WhatsApp, and all associated services, which then resulted in Facebook themselves not being able to talk to one another because they use Facebook for work internally and other communications tools that they couldn't use. So they had to go back to other types of comms tools. And they couldn't even get access. Oh, sorry. So it meant to fix this, they needed access to their infrastructure to be able to fix it, but they'd lost access to their infrastructure. Well, no, they needed to be able to remote into their infrastructure, right? But they couldn't do that because their their network had essentially dropped off the internet. So instead of that, then they had to physically send people to go see the infrastructure who then tried to get in to that physical infrastructure and were locked out of it because their access cards and whatnot needed to be able to authenticate them 
<laughs> to infrastructure that wasn't on the internet. It wasn't it available. Was, it was pretty much they have you have this like circle of like how the cycle of the authentication cycle works. And when you're outside of that cycle, it's very hard to get into it. <laughs> yeah. So essentially it ended up them needing to get physical access to their routers and, and so forth, the physical infrastructure to fix it. The chaos ensued. And so it took them a long time to, to do this. And I saw somebody on Twitter who either had a friend who works at Facebook or was working at Facebook who said, basically, <laughs> groundskeeper Willie had to show up with an angle grinder to let them in. <laughs> <laughs> so the one thing, the, the root cause of this whole thing, like you just described, but the, like the root reason why nobody could get to Facebook or why they were down, what was so interesting about this, like you said, BGP, and I think I would assume that most of our listeners know what DNS is. I would assume it's a safe thing because, you know, Azure AD has done a great job of reminding us what, what DNS is. It's either DNS or SSL. But yeah. now it's BGP. <laughs> yeah, now BGP. You know, DNS is the is like the yellow pages. It's the thing that says, you know, hey, MicrosoftCloudShow.com. Well, sorry, not Facebook.com. What IP should that resolve to? And it says it should go to this address. Well, you're at IP, let's just say IP A, and Facebook is at IP L. What the BGP routes do is they basically are your navigation system to say, you're going to go from this router to this router to this router to this router to get to Facebook, and then they'll respond back to you. It's like your navigation system on the highway. When yeah. the BGP routes were deleted, when I say that they like disappear from the internet, it's the weird thing is that all of their infrastructure was working just fine. It's just that... Nobody knew how to get there. It's like they had a, a, an instant case of amnesia. Yeah. And inside Facebook, it had the exact same effect because nobody knew how to get out. None yeah. of their networks knew how to get out. And so when those things were deleted, it was like epic. What's so surprising about it to me is how easy it was to happen. What was frustrating about it is that like a lot of services, a lot of other sites that rely on Facebook for like authentication or whatever... I found out that a couple of things that my business uses that aren't even tied to Facebook were mm. actually affected by this. And like, I was trying to go through and set up something for in like my in the email platform that I use, and it was incredibly painful because it was so slow. Like, I you click on something and it would take. It was like I was on a a one and a half G connection. Wow, um, it was so painful. And the only way, the way I knew Facebook was working again was all of a sudden my site start the site started getting a lot faster. I go over huh. to Facebook and re refresh, and it's there. I'm like. You got to be kidding me. And the, That's interesting. The, yeah, their support was like, oh, because Facebook's down, they're getting a lot of extra pressure on AWS where all of our stuff is. So AWS is having trouble. I'm like, I don't what? buy that. That doesn't make second. sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, the way I explained BGP to my family and my kids was, say you want to go to, say I was talking to you, AC, and I said, you should come to my house, right? That's the domain name. Like Chris's house is the domain name. And then you use DNS to figure out what my address is. You're like, oh, it's 1234CJWay or whatever, right? Yep. That's 1234CJWay is the IP address. That's the address of the thing. Mm -hmm. But BGP is the book, is the map book or the GPS route that shows you all of the different turns and streets that you have to take yep. to get to where I am. Or at least it helps you figure what those steps are, you know essentially gets you from the internet's not one big network, right? It's thousands of networks and BGP helps you navigate between all those networks and get to the right place. So yeah, now my kids sort of understand a little bit better. I mean, this is my rudimentary, I don't really understand it, understanding of it, 
But uh, yeah, the basics at least. That was epic. That was pretty, that was impressive. But I mean, now that it's happened, hopefully it won't happen again. Everyone will learn and say, let's make sure this can't happen to us again. So like, it's funny yeah. how all these different networks about how reliable they are. And then all of a sudden they have this epic outage going, well, here's the thing we didn't think about. And it's like, it's always a failure of imagination. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's amazing how old these bits of tech are, like that make this stuff work. It's amazing how old they are. And it's also amazing how brittle stuff really is at times. Yeah. So I mean, there's been, we've talked about a, little, a couple of times too, where there's been like a BGP takeover where someone changes it and says, oh yeah, instead of you going this way to get to Facebook, you're going to take this direction instead and it ends up being a giant hack. Okay. So that's the Facebook one. There's another one, another pretty big uh, hack that happened this week that is, it's got nothing to do with, with Microsoft. And we won't spend, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but Twitch had a pretty epic hack as well. Apparently there was a server misconfiguration and that server misconfiguration enabled a hacker or a group to get in and basically get a copy of Twitch. <laughs> Just yeah. going to leave it at that. All, they got all, all the source code to the client apps, the mobile apps. And the part that's really interesting about this is that they were able to get all of the payment information um, yeah. that people were getting for like being sponsored on Twitch. And like a lot of people make a lot of money doing that with streaming. No credit cards were stolen. No passwords seem to have been stolen. That they know of, right? That they know of yet. Yeah. Well, the credit cards weren't stolen because they don't keep credit cards on Twitch. Gotcha. So that's one. That's but they, they did lose, not lose, but they did have all this other like payment information and they've, the media has talked to multiple Twitch people and they've looked at the, they've, they've shown them like, here's what we have on you. And the people on Twitch are like, yep, that yeah. looks legit. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. that's all my payment information. That's all I, looked at some of the, I looked at some of the data and read some about, you know, read a little bit about it. And it's all the payment information that Twitch has made to people, you know, for the number of viewers and all that sort of stuff, but it's not necessarily all the donations that people have given right, and things like that. So, man, the, okay, so it looks like the number one group that get, or, you know, yeah, Twitch account that gets paid out is a Dungeons and Dragons streamer or group of streamers, and they stream D&D campaigns on Twitch, and they got 10 million bucks out of Twitch. I think it was oh in the last God. two years, I want to say. Yeah, they're making wow. about 5 mil a year. From uh, and they're apparently a group of voice actors, so you know they like. I imagine I haven't watched one, but I'm now I'm going to go check it out because it's like I think it'll be like they'll be doing a bunch of voices and it'll be quite entertaining. So be quite fun. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a brutal hack. I saw some of the news coming through on Twitter yesterday and uh, read a little bit about it. Nasty. Not exactly Microsoft related, but definitely cloud security related. So um, Twitch had a bad day too. We're getting um, past the bad parts. Right? <laughs> and then we're almost through the bad stuff. Yeah, we're now through the bad stuff. On to some more positive news and a little closer to home. Nintex, somebody has bought a majority stake from some of the existing investors in Nintex for what looks like a deal that went through for more, that put, gave Nintex more than a $2 billion valuation. So um, this is incredible on a number of levels, right? A lot of people, sort of poo-poo the size of the opportunity when it comes to building software for Microsoft customers in the in the like SharePoint and Office and and uh, Microsoft 365 ecosystem. And I think this should put the nail on the coffin of that well and truly. 
building a a larger than $2 billion business from nothing, right? From what started out as a recycle bin for SharePoint document libraries to now something worth over $2 billion is a pretty epic achievement. And I'll be, you know, I'm a little biased in this, bias in this, I should say. My business partner and co-founder of Hyperfish was Brian Cook, who was one of the original founders of Nintex and has still been heavily involved in it through the years, but obviously no longer works there now, but, you know, was an investor there and owner of that company for a long time. And, and so, um, yeah, I've followed their story quite closely and it's fantastic to see the, you know, the, the progress they've made and the people that have come along that journey. It's amazing. But uh, yeah, anyway, so now a majority stake of Nintex has been sold to a different set of investors and uh, obviously cashed out a bunch of investors along the way and, and gave people uh some value for those shares. They're not publicly traded, right? So it's all private, but uh, amazing to see for our ecosystem. I know with Avpoint going public, that was another big milestone a while back. And Nintex obviously doing this, it's it's pretty interesting. I'd also like to point out, but I'm not saying it's directly correlated to, sponsors of this show have good <laughs> financial outcomes. I'm only kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Yeah, but it but it is a trend. Yeah, it is a trend. <laughs> Both Avpoint and Nintex have been sponsors of our show for a long time. Yeah. You know, have been for a long time. And we, uh when they stop being a sponsor, that's when all the good stuff happened. Yeah, hey, they don't need us anymore. They've made it. Yeah, okay. That's the positive okay. way to yeah. look at it. <laughs> I hope not, I hope the existing sponsors actually like drew that drew that connection. Like stop, we sponsor and then we stop, and then we have a liquidity moment. Like, no, 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 no. That's not Guys, we'll let it's you know when it's time. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll, we'll call you. So to Sharegate, Raygun, Geomont, and Orchestry, we got there. you. We got yeah, you. Hang in. Yeah. Hang in there. Thank you for sponsoring us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, yeah, uh, so let's... great news for Nintex and the, and the Office 365 and Microsoft 365 ecosystem. Great momentum and, and worth investing in the space, one would say. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I've got one bit of news here that came out actually on Wednesday of this week. So, or the previous Wednesday from when the show comes out. So yesterday for you and me, our good friend, Alex Simons, or Simons from the Azure Active Directory group from the Microsoft Identity Group. He's actually the CVP of Microsoft Identity at Microsoft, who joined us, I forget when that was, but a couple of years ago at Ignite, yeah. he joined us on the, as our, like our big premiere guest on the show. Yeah. So I don't have my brain fully wrapped around this yet. This is something I wanted to call out and point to, but you know, say this is something we should definitely be paying attention to. A couple of years ago, about three-ish years ago, Microsoft started a research project or started to incubate a project about a decentralized identity. So they had a, a vision that they defined. Um, I thought I'd read this out real quick. Each of us needs an identity, a digital identity that we own, one that securely and privately stores all elements of our digital identity. And this self-owned identity must be easy to use and give us complete control over how our identity data is accessed and used. So what Microsoft has done over the last three years um, during the incubation is they work with customers and partners across the globe to understand challenges they have with a digital identity, shortcomings they have with their existing systems, had a bunch of proof of concepts they played through, played with. And what they've done is they've started to kind of take help to work with another organization about creating a new open standard and to create a public preview of what they're calling their new 
decentralized identity system, which is the Microsoft Azure Active Directory verifiable credentials, something they came out with in April of 2021. So this whole thing they've come out with is all based now defined like five guiding principles on where they're going to go forward with this. Things like it's secure, reliable, and trustworthy. It's got privacy protection that each user has control over. It's inclusive, fair, easy to use. It's supervisable, and it's environmentally responsible. So when you dig into this, there's a whole blockchain associated with it. There's a whole bunch of stuff coming out with this stuff. And it's, a, it's something that I think is going to be interesting to watch over the next couple of years to see how this evolves. Mm. It's nothing that we can really go use today. It's more or less something that they're working towards. And you know, this is kind of cool. This is, a, this is an interesting thing where you could potentially have this decentralized you know, store of your identity. A lot of questions. I've already seen a lot of people talking about this on Twitter, asking a bunch of questions like, is this going to be something that's going to be like managed by Azure? Um, it's going to be living inside Azure, but it's going to be open that anybody can get to it if you kind of okay them getting into it. Whereas right now, you know, your identities, I mean, how many different logins do you have? You got one with Apple, you got one with Thousands. Google, yeah. one with Facebook, one with Twitter, et cetera. So I'm actually really so- surprised there hasn't been more of a move around decentralized identity with things like what we've seen with blockchain, right? That and crypto in general, that there's no one company that owns like I would have liked to I would like to see a decentralized identity system similar to a blockchain where nobody owns your identity. Does that make sense? Except you. Obviously, you own your identity, but you're not relying on one provider for that identity for whatever system you want to log into, right? And being able to say, hey, I'm rocking up with my crypto identity or whatever you want to call it, that only I can attest to owning and that sites use that instead. I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen more of that, but I guess things like Facebook and Google and... Microsoft ID sort of become people's de facto login provider for things, but it's still owned by Facebook and by by Google and by Microsoft, right? There's no there's no completely decentralized model for these. Or well, maybe there are projects that are doing this stuff, and this is one of them. I don't know. It's interesting. It's gonna be, it's, this is going to be interesting to watch, though, to see how this evolves. But yeah, I, I mean, loads of questions about it. Yeah, blockchain is also like a transparent kind of a thing too, and. It's one of the, you know, when you want to see all the stuff that's going on with, with, like when you think about in the the context of crypto, the blockchain is transparent. Everybody can see what's going on there. You just might not be able to see, you know, who owns this wallet. And so you can see that money changed hand, but you can't see how much, you can see what changed hand, how much changed hand, and you can see it went from this to this, but you can't tell who the quote this is. Yeah. Yeah. So. Hey, speaking of identity and identity confusion, you know, in Windows 11, they've added that new wonky Teams personal app on the start bar. Yeah. You've seen the photos? I so have. I'm very torn about this whole topic in general. Like, it's just so weird to me. But anyway, that there's a now there's a personal... I know Teams have been dabbling in personal, but now there's a personal thing included and bundled with Windows for Teams, and you can't log into it with your work and school account. And Windows 11 is going to get rolled out to businesses. Anyway, I found an article which says removing the built-in Microsoft Teams app with Intune, right? So if you're a business and rolling Windows 11 out, you don't want a personal Teams app baked into your client that you can't log into with your work or school account, right? It'll just be confusing. 
if it's not confusing enough, you'll end up with two icons <laughs> on the start bar for teams, which mm-hmm. is, what were they thinking? Anyway, so you can get rid of it with Intune and there's a, there is an article here that walks you through what the process is, but I thought that might be useful to some people. Yeah. This is kind of continuing our our theme the last couple of weeks too about, you know, we have Skype, (laughs) the Skype refresh and it's like, wait, what, what are you guys Uh, doing? Left hand, right hand. I mean, if they are coordinated in this approach, only they know the logic behind it. It seems utterly perplexing to me, but you know, with windows 11, it really just adds to the mix because now you've got this personal teams app and you're going to have to run the act. You're going to have to run regular teams to be able to log into your actual work stuff and any other networks like that that you're not in with your personal account. What happens when you sign into Windows with an with a with a work account? Like out of ah, <laughs> I'm going to say something that may get me in a little bit of hot water. I can't believe that somebody else, that somebody at Microsoft didn't see this and put the brakes on it before it actually happened. And maybe I'm just being, I'm not trying to create an issue, but when you read the blog post where they talk about this, they point out that the personal teams is the one with the white T while the work teams is the one with, now they call it the blue T. I don't see how anybody can look at teams and even a colorblind person and say that the team's logo is blue and not purple, but I also can't really see how someone in the room didn't speak up and say, wait a minute, we now have a, blue, have a white teams and a colored teams. This doesn't sound good. That's a good point. I don't get that. Yeah. So. Wow. I just God, some things just really blow my mind and confuse me. And this is one of them. I, I got more for you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you want to get more confused or I think, or uh, I don't know, like the whole thing about you want to start tugging at the sweater and see what, and see where this is going to go. Let's unravel it. Go for it. All right, here we go. <laughs> I'm tra- this is an abrupt transition from our team's conversation. Yep. Did you know now that you actually can do some things with the Microsoft Graph API that are going to cost you money? Yes, I did. And this was real this was new news, I guess, this week. This also is slightly perplexing. Mm. I will caveat this by saying when I worked at Microsoft, I had discussions. There were discussions had where there were people trying to charge to use APIs in the Microsoft Graph. It wasn't called Microsoft Graph at the time. What ultimately became Microsoft Graph. And there were people running around trying to figure out how to charge for it to make money off this thing. And for anybody who's ever used an API and is a developer out there like this, this was completely baffling to me. But now it seems <laughs> they may have finally got their way <laughs> with one API that's or one set of APIs that are coming out. Yeah, I understand that they've Microsoft has wanted to some find a way to monetize the Microsoft Graph. To me, like the logical way of doing this would have been, hey, consumption based. So it's kind of like if you want to use Microsoft Graph to get to your data, there's a certain threshold that you get for free. But mm-hmm. then when you go over this threshold, it's going to be more. So basically, you want to avoid those four twenty nines. It's going to cost you. Yeah, and coming out with that yeah. kind of model, like a token model. That to me has always kind of made sense. I remember sitting in conversations even with the with the people, the, the person that owned the Microsoft Graph that was like the the main person talking to her about it and just being like, you know, this to me makes sense. I mean, I get that, you know, it doesn't make sense to Microsoft or other to everybody, but it seems once you get to a certain point. Let me explain what this one is. To me, it's a little to have a, a payment gateway 
on a specific API to get access to my data. But that's effectively what's happened here. So this is the graph export API. And specifically, this is going to enable customers and ISVs to export Microsoft Teams message data for processing in their security and compliance SaaS applications. They call this the S plus C for security and compliance. There are two options for using this. One is designed for scenarios and the other is designed for more all-purpose scenarios. So to be able to get access to your security and compliance data, it requires you to have an E5 license, which provides a seated yeah. So that we, and there's a bunch of things that have needed certain licenses there. So to get access yeah. to certain data, I, that's fine. Like, for example, if you were using the, I think it was called Graph Data Connect, you had to have a workplace analytics license. Yeah. But um, this is just to get your data that you already own out. Right. So for this, for, for S plus C scenarios, so security compliance scenario, it requires you have an E5 license, which gives you a seed capacity to use the API without consumption cost until you reach that capacity. And then for all other scenarios, there are no specific license requirements and the API is charged on a per message that's been exported. So there's a, a couple of little details here in the blog post that explains how this whole thing works. They have like what's called model A, which is security and compliance which is a restricted to applications of performing security and or compliance functions. You got to have an E5 license to use that. Again, you got a seed capacity and then you're adding, they're adding seed capacity per user calculated per month. If you want to go beyond that, you're going to be billed on a consumption basis. Then there's a general usage scenario, model B, which is all non-security and compliance related scenarios. And there's no license requirements for that. So a couple scenarios to that, that but things are not- That make it free to, though. Nope, doesn't make it free. Things okay. like Teams Backup, Analytics and BI, Sentiment Analysis Applications, etc. There's also an eval mode, an evaluation mode, which is the default mode. So no model declaration enables access to APIs with limited usage per requesting application for evaluation purposes. I've read this blog post multiple times, and I'm going to tell you, this is not clear at all to no. me. Like when I fall into it or how they're enforcing it or where I'm supposed to put my credit card in. Yeah, it's, it's not, pretty messy. This is not clear. And the I, way this has been rolled out is confusing. My TLDR for people is if you're doing anything with security and compliance, so archival, data loss protection, compliance, e-discovery, or you use a product that does those things and wants to get data out of the graph, you're going to need E5 licenses. That's the bottom line. If any of those apps want to talk to the graph and use these APIs, they're going to need Users are going to need an E5 license for for whichever you know users you want to get messages out of out of the graph using, for example. So like, you know, you might use a e-discovery app and it needs to go and find messages in Teams. The users for them that own the messages in Teams, they will need an E5 license. And you'll get a seeded capacity of how hard you can hit the graph basically to get those things. Or if you're not doing security and compliance, you're going to get charged. There's no seeded capacity. And it's a it's a user pays system. Yeah. Backup, for example. They say, yeah, backup and analytics and BI, for example. So that's going to be metered. There's no pre-seeded amount you get for free as part of your regular licenses. What they're trying to do here is push everybody to E5, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. The premium stuff for security and compliance is kind of that's all historically gone into E5 anyway. So they're pushing this. They're basically saying if you want to do any security and compliance, 
going to have to go to E5. That's another stick that they've got to whack people with. And the, the simple answer for this is they've saturated the market with E3 licenses and they've got to look for upsell to E5, right? This has been going on for a few years now. So mm-hmm. more of the march towards E5. And everybody else, you're just going to have to pay per use. What's interesting about this is it's like, you know, when you've been at the pub and you've been drinking, that first trip to the bathroom, once you've gone once, boom, you got to go lots of times, cracking the seal, mm-hmm. so to speak, right? So this is the mm-hmm. first time the graph will have been charging, will have charged for, or that Microsoft will have charged for specific graph usage. And it's cracking the seal. We will see what else comes. I think this is a this is not a good move for customers, at least. Very confusing. And if the graph was not confusing enough with what permissions you need, which scenarios work and which APIs work in these particular scenarios with these permissions, when the wind's blowing from the west and when you hold your tongue out, now you've got charging to deal with as well. So I personally feel like it's a little bit of a misstep from the graph team on this, but we'll see what customers ultimately say. And I would suspect they've done their research on it and talk to customers about it and vendors and things, and they're going to give it a shot. So, but what else will they start charging for? That's, we've all been kind of waiting for this. I mean, even those of us that are, you know, close to some of the people that run Microsoft Graph and that know the people behind the scenes and everything, I know that they've wanted to find a way to go through and to monetize it. Like you said, I don't blame them for wanting to do it. And I don't think it's not unjustified for them to be able to do it. It's not an unjustified move. I get it. I just find that the way that this has been rolled out is there. It's like, you know, God, this feels like I'm going back to the SharePoint days of like licensing. And it's like, it's just, it's like, this isn't clear, man. This is like, I need a, I need like a degree to figure this out. I've read this blog post multiple times. It's not clear. And if the only people that tell me going, no, 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 it actually makes a lot of sense. If those only, if those are only, the only people that are telling me that are people that are on the Microsoft Graph team, which is which is what is happening. I'm like that to me. That says it's a problem when there's multiple of us outside of Microsoft who even know the people at Microsoft that are like, "This ain't clear, man. This is confusing." But the yeah. Graph people are like, "No, no, no. It actually makes a lot of sense." Going, <laughs> I, okay, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> I want to say that this reminds me. You know, and this might sound a little overly harsh, so I apologize in advance, but this feels a little Barmer-esque, right? Yeah. Barmer was notorious for not wanting to simplify licensing on purpose and making it complicated and hard because it gave the salespeople in the field all of the tools at their disposal to craft, you know, the best deal for the customer that gave, not well, not for the customer, a deal for the customer that gave them the most flexibility in how they put it together and with pricing and licensing. He outright said it a number of times that licensing complexity is totally fine. And this just feels like a little bit of that again. It like feels like a little bit of harking back to Obama making it complex to buy stuff. Uh, that's what it feels like. And I'm, I'm curious to see where this goes. But I mean, the first step, it just, I would have thought things would have been a lot simpler to at least understand. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's a trial for them though. This is the first time they've done it. They might get pushback on it. It might go really well. Like, I guess we will see and they'll hopefully, you know, tweak and adjust the model as they get feedback on it. So they're dipping their toes in the water. I'm not sure how backup vendors and stuff are going to feel about this. Migration vendors as well, like our good friends at ShareGate, for example, who sponsor the show, they'll come across having to, the deals will become more complicated, right? Because if they mm-hmm. want to use these APIs that are going to do the things that they need, 
they're going to need to talk to the customers and say, by the way, when you use our tool, it's going to cost you some amount of money and we don't really know how much because it's hard to calculate. Mm-hmm. That will be tricky for them to it navigate. Will. We'll see. Yeah. All right. So, th- yeah, that was, so that was Graph. I've got a quick link. I won't really dive into details, but we covered the new Surface stu- Laptop Studio, the bendy, flexy three-way machine that we're not entirely sure what it's trying to be. I just thought I'd post a link to a follow-up review that I saw from Marky Brownlee, you know, the MKB, I think he calls himself on YouTube. I actually really like his reviews. He seems like a really down-to-earth, just straight-up guy, and I actually quite like his stuff. He has posted a, an impressions video on the Surface Laptop Studio with Windows 11 and um, has a few things to say about it, which I thought were, hmm. were pretty... He's actually very good about, you know, like, this is kind of interesting, not entirely sure how it'll fly, what people will think. It's my, I could, He's actually quite positive about it, but also has a bit of a, like, say, what? <laughs> Are you doing what? To it. So, yeah, it's just a good a good sort of video to go watch if you want a summary of, of what this thing is and what it can do from a non-Microsoft person. Hmm, cool. I also have a quick one here, unless you want to go into a little bit more depth on it, but there is a, a breaking change from the Microsoft Graph eDiscovery API. It is the beta endpoint, so it's not like... This you should is expect breaking changes. Yeah. Right, yeah. You, sh- you should expect that things are, your toys are going to break. They just have a breaking change that they're announcing here. Specifically, they're changing the name of the settings resource to something called case settings. And that's going to simply, that's being done to avoid future name conflicts and better describe the resource. The breaking changes are going to be rolling out to the beta endpoint on October the 11th, which I admit now that I'm not entirely... Oh, well, so their rollouts have already happened. Um, by the time you listen to this, that would have happened on Monday, October the 11th, and the episode comes out on the 12th. I was about to say, so the API changes, does it, are the changes to include a new parameter called credit card? <laughs> <laughs> CCID. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Nice, nice. All right, I have one here about Azure. So Azure are committing more resources to open source projects with a program to give back to the community through the use of credits for open source projects. So Microsoft are giving away a bunch of licenses or credit, you know, usage credits, I suppose, to a number of open source projects, including FreeBSD, Alma Linux, Haskell, SnakeMate, and Promotor. I think I'm pronouncing that. But yeah, that's kind of cool. See them supporting open source projects like this and giving them credits. It also really helps Microsoft, right, that they get big named open source projects using their platforms so that other people see what's going on there and, and think of it as a viable option. Microsoft definitely has the problem of uh, like startups and other companies not starting with, with Azure as a thing versus AWS, for example. So, you know, yep. it's good for them too, but kind of cool to see them supporting community like this. Same with GitHub and all that. Yes, sir. Yes, definitely is. Right. Are we ready to move on to our picks, AC? We sure are. Let's go ahead and jump into it. Let's do it. AC's Voitanos delivers on-demand video-based training for developers on the latest SharePoint extensibility model from Microsoft in his course, Mastering the SharePoint Framework. Back to the show. All right. What have you got for us this week? I have a, a quick and easy pick here. In At the beginning of October... NASA is actually going to have an interesting blackout from all of their Mars probes and all of their Mars uh, rovers because... It's not BGP, is it? 
No, it's not BGP. <laughs> it's, a, it's BGP, the space edition. Gotcha. They know how to get to it. The problem is, is that... There's no route. <laughs> well, no, there's a route. The problem is, is there's uh, something in the route that oh. they're concerned about. It's called the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so the sun is going to be between Earth and Mars and the chromosphere around the sun. They're not going to have a clean route to get to Mars. And so they're, con- they're actually concerned. And I believe they're running some tests on it as well on are they going to be able to get to uh, are the commands are going to send to the different probes and orbiters and rovers are those going to actually get corrupted when they try and go through the chromosphere so it's a big issue they're concerned about idea but well i hope that works out they're gonna have a two-week outage comms blackout for all their everything they've got over and and running on mars let's just hope it doesn't go the way of the facebook outage and that people need to go there and get physical access to <laughs> to reboot things. It would be Brutal. like a two week. It'd be like a two week Facebook timeout. Yeah, there you go. That'd suck. You know, um, they make sure that like the the satellites align or the planets align. Yeah. So right now, that alignment doesn't work into our doesn't work well. I guess it happens from time to time. I hadn't really thought about it much. All right. So I've got my pick here. Slightly different, not space related but racing related. So if you haven't already seen it, there's a new documentary, couple of hour long documentary titled Schumacher, which is, surprise, surprise, about Michael Schumacher and his life and things like that. And I watched this recently and I just thought it was, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was quite well done. It was, you know, about his upbringing and life and getting into racing and all of that sort of stuff. And it was just incredible sort of story of his life and uh, how it all came to be and how he got into racing and and his life. It just took a very personal view, like a personal look at the person, not just his race results. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a good, uh, a good take on it. And um, obviously he was not in the show, in the movie, in his current state, at least, you know, but his family were, which was really amazing to see them talk a little bit about it. They're very, very private, right? We haven't Mm -hmm. seen or heard, we haven't seen anything of him since his skiing accident and haven't heard much about him, but he's obviously not the person he used to be, but is still alive, which is, you know, extremely sad for all of his fans around the world. But I thought the, the film was done in a very tasteful and appropriate tone in keeping with his family's wishes for privacy. Yeah, it's sad, but he had a, for those who aren't aware, he had a, a skiing accident, I think it was three years ago. Longer, I think. Was it longer? Four. It was quite a but while, he up, yeah. And had a, a very traumatic brain injury that is, had lasting effects. So he's not the person he was when he was more in public, so. Yeah, yeah, very sad. But a very well done, interesting look at his life and uh, legacy as a Formula One world, well, six times Formula One world champion, I think. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible yep, sports it person. Is. So, but it was a great, you're right. It was a great piece. It's a really good piece if you're a racing fan, but it was a really good, it was really well done. Yeah. All right, AC. Well, thank you for another interesting week. We looked at Facebook in a number of different ways, some Azure stuff, Surface stuff, some Nintex news, amazing, some security stuff with Twitch. 365 news and finished off with a couple of picks. As always, good talking and uh, look forward to catching up next week. Absolutely, man. Good seeing you again. And we will see everybody next week. Right on. See ya. 
Did you like this episode? Please tweet about it and drop a five-star review in your favorite podcast app. It helps people find out about our show and grow our audience, and we'd really appreciate it. If you have a question for us, go to microsoftcloudshow.com forward slash questions, where you can submit it as text or record it as a wave or MP3 and provide us a link so we can play it on the show. You can also subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. And finally, sign up for our mailing list by heading over to microsoftcloudshow.com, where you'll get notices of each episode, as well as the show notes sent to you directly each week. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening.